This is a Neon Night Media production. This is Mike from You're Missing Out. Uh, you just got done hearing a little snippet of our new theme song uh, for season two and beyond. You remember us? Uh, let me reintroduce you to everybody. Uh, Tom, my esteemed co-host, is here. Tom Lorenzo. Hello, guys. It's been a while. It's been a little while. And, of course, our producer, Kyle, is here as well. Kyle, thanks so much for, for joining us again. Yeah, of course, gentlemen. How you guys been? I'm doing well. Uh, I just want to put it out there that for once in my fucking life... Something being done way later than it needs to be done. Procrastinating season two was not my goddamn fault. I didn't wait until the... this is not my fault. I'm always the one waiting until the end. Mike's known me since college. I don't do homework until it's due that day. This is not my fault. We're back. So uh, that's Tom's way of letting you guys know we are back today. We are doing this episode. This is a special episode our real-time reactions to the National Film Registry selections. We did this last year. Uh, a lot of listeners really enjoyed it, so we're doing it again this year. Season two of You're Missing Out is happening. It is coming in 2022. We have some episodes in the can. We have more on the horizon. We just set up a record with a very exciting guest that I know all three of us are so stoked. So season two, so season two will be coming in 2022. We are very excited. Uh, but first, this episode is going to be our real-time reactions to the selections of the National Film Registry. Just today, the Library of Congress announced the 25 films that will be going into the National Film Registry. Uh, I have only seen like three titles because they popped up in my Twitter feed and I immediately texted these two guys for us to get together. Uh, Tom has not seen any of the titles that have been selected. Uh, so the way this is going to work is Kyle, our producer, is going to, in chronological order, from oldest to newest uh, of the 25 inductees, he is going to give us the title to see if we know what it is just from the title alone. If we do, we're going to talk about it. If we don't, he's going to tell us about this new selection. And you're going to get our uh, real in-the-moment reactions to these selections to the registry. Uh, Kyle, you have looked at the list. How do you feel about this year's class of entrance? I got to be honest with you. I feel like no matter what aspect of film you subscribe to i feel like there is a there's a movie that is represented here for you i don't think anybody's looking at this list going what on earth are they thinking or oh, why do they put that in here or why do they choose this or not this i think everybody's going to walk away uh both us as individuals and the team as a whole and our uh, objective i think we're going to be really happy about this list awesome now this is pretty cool because last year when we reacted to this we had been because we were midway through our season we had been naming films that we wanted in the registry at the end of each episode. This is something we do is we name a film that we are submitting uh, to be considered by the National Film Registry. Uh, at the end of season one, we took that list of 50 films that we had nominated and we actually submitted it to the Library of Congress to theoretically be considered this year as potential inductees. So what is going to happen now, uh, before we get into what actually got inducted this year, Kyle is going to remind us of the 50 movies that we told the National Film Registry should be considered 
The idea being, we'll find out if they took any of those suggestions. Or more likely than not, we're going to wind up with egg on our face at the end of this record. <laughs> and but now, nevertheless... Now, the, the, way Mike said, the way Mike said, we did tell them. We said, hey, listen, put these fucking movies in, or we're going to be mad. These weren't suggestions. We told them. And yeah, in, we, we got to see if we're going to need to crack some fucking kneecaps this year, in, because we, we, if we don't get listened to, we get mad. That's in retrospect... In retrospect, having Tom write the email was a mistake, I think. <laughs> All right. Kyle, remind us what we nominated for the National Film Registry for 2021. These are not the films that were put in. These are the films that we suggested as nominations. And just also a reminder, we each got one in last year. We that did. is right. We That's did. right. To be clear, to be clear. They selected those films before we made these no, submissions. No, no. Don't but... don't be modest. We told them. <laughs> well, no, I should point out. So and last year, last year, Tom at the end of one episode said uh, the Blues Brothers. I at the end of one episode said Clockwork Orange. Then they were selected as part of the 2020 class. So we actually let Kyle pick two films to take the place of those titles when we made our submissions. So you're going to notice that. I am suggesting 24 films. Tom is suggesting 24 films. And Kyle is suggesting two. These were our submissions uh, prior to their uh, selection process this year. Kyle, what did we submit? So, Mike, on your side of the list, we've got Hannah and Her Sisters, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, the Trump Talk Citizen Kane clip, Terms of Endearment. It's a mad, 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 it's a mad, 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 mad world, bamboozled, Helga. Huelga. The Lone Ranger, uh, Huelga, excuse me. The Lone Ranger, the 1938 serial. Crazy Cat, what is this? Bugologist. Bugologist, Crazy Cat Bugologist. Just Another Girl on the IRT, Blue Velvet, Technological Threat, Street Fight, Tongues United, Thief. Tongues Dixon Untied. Dugs Untied, sorry. <laughs> I'm a little dyslexic today, I apologize. Thief, Dixon Buffalo Bill Films, Moulin Rouge, The Little Mermaid, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Iron Man. Watermelon Woman, Boogie Nights, Batman 1989, and The Wizard of Oz 1910. Tom, uh, your list included Rolling Thunder, The Age of Innocence, There Will Be Blood, They Live, Failsafe, The Train, Casino, The Hired Hand, Man on Fire, Magnolia, Brooklyn, Brick, Madawan, Nixon, F for Fake, Fat City, Fort Apache, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Blade, Blood Simple, Barton Fink, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and Brazil. My two picks were, of course, Spider-Man and uh, the first YouTube video, Me at the Zoo from 2006. I can tell you from to this wait, list... To issue, oh, yeah. to, don't tell me anything, Yeah. Don't, but to issue a quick correction, Tom's submission was Crooklyn, the Spike Lee film. Uh, I believe one of our emails uh, auto-corrected it to Brooklyn. Tom Thank did you. Not, Tom did not submit the currently ineligible Saoirse Ronan film. I was very confused when I was just like, hang on, I don't think, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It, Thank okay. you for that. It is official. Google is racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so that is what we suggested. Now it is time to find out what they selected. Kyle. Uh, and Tom and I can keep personal little tallies of how many of these we know. Uh, Kyle, why don't you take it away? What is the first film of the new selections? From 1902, we have the Ringling Brothers Parade film. From 1902. So now is that 
because they so do here, this in the registry. This is this is just filmed footage of the Ringling Brothers parade. Yeah, let me give you yeah. a little description. Okay. Yeah, because this might help for this one. So recently restored, and you can correct me on the pronunciation of this by the Niles Asani Silent Film Museum. Asini? Sure. I, I don't. Sure. I don't have. The, I don't. I don't know. This three-minute actuality recording of a circus parade mm-hmm. in Indianapolis in 1902 accidentally provides a rare glimpse of a prosperous northern black community at the turn of the century. African Americans rarely appear in films of that era, and then only in caricature or as mocking distortions through a white lens. Actuality films indelibly capture time and space, fashion, ceremonies, locations soon to disappear, behavior at large events, and the key daily routines of life, sometimes unexpectedly so, as in this delightful gem. Wow, that's a lot more. Like I'm used to them doing those what they called actuality films of you know, there's a number of those in there. There's you know of like home movies or just things filming events. There's like a Disneyland home movies film in there. There's a bunch of footage of um, McKinley, but I didn't realize it had that much going on in it. That sounds that sounds even more interesting than I expected. Wow. They actually have a link to uh, the restoration that they put up on YouTube, so I can send that oh, to you sweet. guys after the show too if you're interested. Yeah, in I'm very I'm so... very curious. Yeah. So this is just uh, footage of a, a circus in Indianapolis, is what you're saying, or what, what? What? So I'm trying to just get my head around this. I think the idea is that like there was there was recording of like the Ringling Brothers parade, but they're inducting it because there is a rare glimpse of sort of what an African American community looked like at the beginning of the century. Okay. No. See, I'm just I, I you know I find it funny because uh, in, in our day and age where nothing. It can be, you know, gray. Everything's black or white. I- I'm just imagining people being, you're putting in the film about the elephant torturer. And it's like, well, it's because they were showing black life before they were doing that. Yeah, but like, ugh, woke much? We can't, we can't turn this into a cancel culture rant on our first film. <laughs> it's, not a cancel, it's not a cancel culture no, rant. Know, it's know, about, it's about how nobody can fucking, uh, you know, I, I, the only I, way I this know, could be I more know, cancelable is if there was an age gap in it. All right, let's, let's. <laughs> Let's jump off this one. Uh, Kyle, what's the second film? From 1919, Hublio. Uh, Jubilo? Jubilo. I'm sorry. What in the... Okay. All right. J-U-B-I-L-O from 1919. Sure. I'm gonna, I got no idea, and I'm assuming Tom does not either. Um, okay. I, it sounds the, like he's insulting this, me in Yugoslavia. Is this, is this, <laughs> is this a document like or an actuality film a documentary is this a narrative what what do we got here no but it looks like it's a narrative so in the third film of his illustrious motion picture career humorist and cowboy philosopher will rogers enacted the easygoing likable tramp hublio named or hubilo excuse me named after a civil war song in which enslaved people using stereotypical dialect celebrate their hoped for emancipation Theater organists and pianists no doubt played the tune repeatedly throughout the picture, and for years afterwards, it became a signature song for Rogers, a multiracial member of the Cherokee Nation who often portrayed a comic trickster common in both African-American and Native American cultures. Despite its predictable plot, Hubilo was distinguished by the uniquely human character Rogers created and the title cards he authored that gave national audiences a taste of the topical remarks he would casually toss off from the stages as he entertained New York audiences with his roping and horseback riding tricks. One card, appearing after his character sends, spends a night trying to fix an automobile, satirizes Henry Ford's recently unsuccessful political ambitions with the line, no wonder he wasn't elected to the Senate with everyone owning one of these. Reviewers praised Rogers' wonderfully natural creation and rugged sense of humor, and a few years later, director Eric von Stroheim 
commended Rogers' picture for their character-driven realism, a desired quality he found otherwise lacking in most of Hollywood's more plot-dominated productions. The film is preserved by the Museum of Modern Art. Sold. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So that was a lot more than I feel like they usually give us. Uh, yeah. Also, I just went to IMDb. There is no runtime for this movie. Is this like a lost movie? I'm like, because, like, it's there's there's no runtime on IMDb. So I like I don't know if this is a short or like a like a long movie. I mean, I know it's 1919, so it's probably not fucking three hours long. But like, is it is it 20 minutes? Is it like 62 minutes? What what are we doing? Uh, with the well, Wikipedia lists it as 50 minutes, Tom. Okay, because it's not so, it's on IMDb. Yeah. It just doesn't have any like that's what. Yeah, no, Wikipedia. Wikipedia has it at 50 minutes. Uh, you're okay, right. So IMDb does like, not have a runtime. So this is like the early version of a feature length. Yeah, this was a feature for its time. Uh, I'm super. I'm legitimately. I've, I'm enjoying this so far. I don't know if this streak is going to carry through for the rest of the films, but twice now, uh, Kyle has named something that at face value, like when I just hear the title and the early description, I go, all right, and now I'm more interested. Um, yeah. I have struggled with Will Rogers in terms of like, I feel like the way Will Rogers has been passed down. I mean, you know, he's not really passed down that much, but, but the way he has, uh, when they talk about him being an early satirist, like a lot of the satire you hear from Rogers will be him going, the thing about Congress is it's bad. And it's like, it feels very just like kind of inoffensively folksy. And I know that he he must have had more bite to it than that. I know that he was an important figure for a period of time. I just have not been exposed to much um, biting satire from Will Rogers, which is what this sounds like. So I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately very interested in this. Um, and it's also, what did you say? It was 1919? 1919, yep. So it's, so it's public domain. So it will find its way on the internet soon. Uh, cool. 102 years old. Congratulations. Wow. You're you're in the Kirk Douglas years. Yeah, goddamn. All right. What is number three, Kyle? So far, we are uh, 0 for 2 in terms of knowing what these are. From 1926, we have The Flying Ace. The Flying Ace. Hang on. I think I know this because 19... What did you say, 20? Something? 20, 26, yep. 1926. So this isn't this isn't animated. This is a live action. This mm-hmm. is is this the one with the African American cast? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so the Norman yes. So the Norman Film Manufacturing Company of Jacksonville, Florida was an important producer of race films, movies made specifically for black audiences. Although owned by Richard Norman, a white man, the studio's films tended to portray a world in which whites and thus racism was completely absent. The Flying Ace is an excellent example of fairly straightforward romance in the skies drama with a compelling cast and good production values. Yeah, yeah, no, that, okay, yes. The only reason I, I have that offhand is I'm pretty sure I have the that um, that separate cinema coffee table book and I remember spotting that, I think, in there. Um, interesting. Okay. I don't think that's in the... No, it wouldn't be in Pioneers after the American. Okay, sorry. Uh, never mind. I'm going off track. Uh, Flying Ace. Yes, I do know Flying Ace. Uh, I do not. Uh, it's about an hour long, and it uh, sounds cool. I would definitely, uh, I would definitely watch it. Uh, Kyle, any, uh, what's, what's number four? Number four from 1930. We have Hellbound Train. Wow, okay. Look at this. You know, like, I feel like with us, like, in the first two years of the registry, um, like, our first season, the only film we had that dealt with um, with the African-American experience was uh, The Learning Tree. We're working on season two now, and the only film that deals with the African-American experience then, we got a single film, which is Killer of Sheep. And it kind of felt like, especially in those early years, 
the approach was like, you get one. But now, just right off the bat, I mean, you got that Ringling Brothers film. Um, you got Flying Ace, which is the African-American cast. And then Hellbound Train is a, it's a silent film, uh, right? I believe it's silent. Um, and it depicts, uh, it is about, it was made by uh, African-American filmmakers. It's in that, I think it's the first film on that. If anybody has that Kino Lorber, Pioneers of African-American Cinema Blu-ray collection, it's the first film in that. And it's essentially uh, telling you, if you listen to jazz music and smoke jazz cigarettes and hang out with loose women, you'll be on a train to hell. Oh um, yeah. And it's wild. And uh, I believe I could be wrong here, but I believe that the whole thing was like the film itself was not the whole presentation. Like this was something that would get brought around in like revival tents and the preacher would have the film playing and they would talk while it was on. So they were providing uh, a narration to the film live, um, which is similar to if anybody knows Gertie the Dinosaur, uh, the version of Gertie the Dinosaur we see now is not the, the proper version because the proper version was an actual man in front of the screen in real in person interacting with the dinosaur. I think this was much the same way with Hellbound Train. Uh, I've seen Hellbound Train. It's, it's, it's a weird because it doesn't have a traditional narrative, at least in the version that I have seen, it's a fascinating thing to look at. Um, yeah, Hellbound Train, I do know. Yes. Very interesting. Wow. Okay. Uh, I, I do not. And uh, jumping off from Mike, say, you know, pointing out that they get their, uh, you know, pu- pushing the uh, representation stuff, because I feel like we even pointed it out last year, like, it feels like uh, they're making a concerted so, effort yeah. after, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, film sort of companies and organizations and whatnot were getting a lot of shit for uh how whitewashed everything was and uh you know seeing as how this this one is specifically american yeah it is kind of like weird to not dive into that stuff until recently but you know it's good that it's coming yeah and, I... uh, especially older stuff like this because you know it's uh it's it's not like uh you know, Criterion saying, yeah, One Night in Miami, that's uh, one of the best movies ever. It's like, no, we're going back to, you know, foundational kind of movies here that people weren't talking about, but maybe did inspire shit. Like, you, you, you're talking about the, it, it almost sounds like an art installation. Yeah. Where uh, I wouldn't be surprised, I mean, maybe not, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was a kind of in the mind of uh, Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele with Candyman this year. Yeah, with and it's art installations and 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 the black experience and all that stuff. I, I don't know, but um, yeah. So it's cool to, especially for older movies like I like I've said before, before nineteen fifties, I'm kind of useless. But for even for this, this feels even more like they're diving deeper into oh, yeah. a, a realm that a lot of so called cinephiles would not. Uh, be as well aware of uh, to my uh, mind at least i i recently did a i published a piece that talked a bit about um this this kino lorber box set that features it because it is something interesting about kino lorber did it with their pioneers of african-american cinema and pioneers of uh pioneers women filmmakers those two blu-ray sets but there really does seem to be an effort particularly on the registry's part as well to kind of correct the record that so many of us have this idea that cinema was always a white male dominated medium that you know that that african american life was was not 
so many people think it wasn't depicted on film until the learning tree or shaft you know they 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 think that you know that it was just so exclusionary and while that was the case uh once hollywood uh you know was was dominant uh you look at the stuff in pioneers of african american cinema or pioneers women filmmakers and you're just seeing that no this medium belonged to uh everyone early on and that women were doing such interesting things that later got lifted and 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 african-american filmmakers are doing so many interesting things that later got lifted and i think it's really great that the registry is inducting these films and shining a spotlight on these films so that the next generation can understand that dw griffith didn't invent movies you know that he didn't really invent shit uh you know, and that there were other people doing this. So I think that's great. Throw that next one at us, buddy. Yeah, what's All right, one? so for number five, from 1932, Flowers and Trees. Whoa, okay, cool. All right, so it is, I mean, Kyle, you can't be at all shocked that I know Flowers and Trees. No, uh, not at all. No. Uh, Flowers and Trees was the first animated short to ever win the Academy Award for Best Animated Short. It also holds the distinction. It is the first uh, cartoon produced by the Walt Disney Company in three-strip Technicolor. So obviously Steamboat Willie, all of the older Disney shorts, the Alice shorts are all in black and white. Flowers and Trees is in a very vibrant color. Um, and while, Tom, you have not necessarily seen the original Flowers and Trees short, you do know the Flowers and Trees. Do you know why you know that, Tom? Why do I know that, Mike? Because they cameo in a little movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I just literally had that on. Yeah, the Dancing Flowers and Dancing Trees are a tribute. They are the the Flowers and Trees from this pivotal short. I mean, Flowers and Trees, when you watch it, I think the thing that's so impressive about it, I love that short anyway. Um, it's one of my favorite Disney cartoons, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite that ever won the Oscar because it's just so... It's not just that it's vibrant for its day. It's that you still feel a sense of astonishment looking at it. Like, it's so pretty and it's so fun. They still have the cartoony faces, you know? We're not moving into that much more naturalist look that comes along after Snow White and whatever, but, it, but it's, it's so pretty. It's so nice. Flowers and trees, that's, that's great. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy about that. That's a, it's a wonderful selection. It's on Disney Plus if anybody wants to check it out. It's on Disney Plus, and uh, if you want to see it in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as I was texting Mike before, they just put out a 4K disc of that movie, and it is mind-boggling how good that movie looks and how none of the seams show. So there's a plug for, uh, uh, <laughs> for a physical media. Yeah. <laughs> good. We well, it. it's in the fucking film. No, you're right. It is, and it's in the registry. Yeah. It's not, it's not like I'm saying, hey, buy Guns of the Navarone. It just got a 4K disc. Kyle, the next film is Guns of Navarone. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, Kyle, what's the next film? From 1951, Strangers on a Train. Oh, of course. Okay. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, so yeah, we've we've both seen that, and yeah, I, yeah. I watched it this year with my trying to finish all my Alfred Hitchcock movies I fucking had on Blu-ray. So like, God, I gotta just walk, watch these. And Stranger on the Train was one of my favorites. Uh, uh, I'm glad it's on this list. I feel like because I'm the the mainstream boy who who picks mainstream populist movies for my suggestions, I would have probably gotten to this as a suggestion soon. And uh, Still, still mourning that we're not getting the David Fincher, Gillian Flynn version yeah. of this story because that would have ruled. But this movie rules too. No, Strangers on a Train. I I support it. It's not one of my like all time Hitchcock films, but it's also one of those cases where 
like half the films that aren't in my top Hitchcock films are also thoroughly enjoyable watches. You know, well, like, yeah. that's the weird thing about him. It's one that I do kind of wish was in his Technicolor phase. Like, uh, like I don't think it would have benefited from his Technicolor phase of, like, casting 60-year-old men to play 28-year-old <laughs> guys. Like, I don't think this needed Jimmy Stewart versus, uh, you know, uh, Cary Grant or whatever. But, like, I, I would have loved to see him do this in this in the super colorful like you know because i like vertigo and rear window and all that stuff uh, they look so great and uh but still this movie rules you know it's not a movie where i would have said it a remake would definitely be better than this but i know that there's a way to uh complement it because i feel like gillian flynn would not have just done this she would have she would have found a way to make it uh, a little more interesting and twisted and uh kind of I don't know. Either way, uh, I'm rambling. This movie rules. It is It is one of Hitchcock's better. If It's definitely not top five, but it's definitely up there. Cool. From 1962, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, cool. okay. That's yeah. great. Now, it's it's funny. There's, uh, well, you know what? Good. We we did an episode. Uh, it's not out yet. Obviously, it's in season two, but Tom and I argue, are mad at ourselves that neither of us picked Whatever Happened to Baby Jane for the registry. Good. Good we didn't. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, it rules. It's good. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, very good. Also, also, if you can, find the season of Feud, Betty and, uh, fuck, I'm, uh, blah, 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 blah. Feud, Betty and Joan. Betty and Joan. Uh, it's a great uh, season of TV. Maybe the best thing Ryan Murphy ever put his name on because he didn't fucking write any of it. But um, it's great to compliment whatever happened to Baby Jane. Watch that shit. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, very good. It's it's a horror film that I think is tawdry in the best way. Yeah, I if, if and it's also them, yeah. it's 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 in, and it's interesting too in that um, not just it kind of starts the hag exploitation era of like a, a subgenre of film. Uh, not that it would, it's also interesting in kind of reviving Betty and Jones careers in a way, because, you know, they were getting older and that's not something uh, Hollywood approves of for women. Uh, but I also just think it's so interesting that a movie that this feminine and about women and this, it comes from a guy who was such a masculine, gritty, tough filmmaker like Robert Aldrich, who, you know, he'd make shit like the Dirty Dozen and stuff like that. Like he was a man's man filmmaker and to uh roll into this is a a good argument uh maybe against not necessarily against the auteur theory but kind of the like almost similar to robert wise since west side stories in the air of like oh they do everything so they don't have a style where you can go well no they can do anything that's the style yeah and uh i think that's maybe the most interesting thing about the movie in my eyes at least because you wouldn't see this and then see like the dirty dozen you wouldn't think that's the same guy, but you know, movies now more than ever. All right, Kyle, what's next on the docket? Number eight from 1965, Evergreen. Evergreen. Is this a documentary since both of us don't know it? No, hang on, hang on. No, because Evergreen, no. I'm thinking for a second, my brain jumped to Evergreen, the theme from A Star is Born. But then no. I remembered, no, that's A Star is Born. Is this a, is this a short or a feature? It looks like it is a student film. A student Excuse film? me? A student <laughs> film? Hang on, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I swear to fucking God, I think I know this. Is this by... I'm not going to know which. So, Kyle, I'm going to throw three names at you. Please tell me if any of them are involved with this movie. 
Robbie Krieger, Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek. Uh, it's Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek, yeah. Yes, it's one of the Door student films. Oh, fuck yeah. me. Okay. Really? Yeah. Isn't this Ew. one like, isn't it like some, isn't it like some, oh, I don't remember what this is now. I've, I, I saw it back in college. Okay. Okay, cool. Cool. Very, yes. Are they in it or he just direct? Who? Okay, never mind. I don't have any, I don't have any further questions, Your Honor weird weird cool weird i don't i don't approve of any sort of the doors approve appreciation in any way <laughs> shape or form this is a travesty i'm going to take this up with the the film registry as soon as i can this is nonsense man guys uh just so you guys can't wait until we get to season 37 and cover this film which in our current pace we'll be doing in the year 2995 yep yeah, uh, Kyle no. keeps moving back and forth of it between the continental <laughs> United States, and we gotta wait for him. Kyle yeah. has now lived in every state by this point. Oh, pretty much. Uh, so he just won't live in Alaska. Yeah, I was just wow. gonna say. Yeah. Evergreen, wow. evergreen. In- okay, interesting. Did they? What was their reasoning? I'm curious. Um, so let's see. Before co-founding the Doors and the band, learning their craft in Los Angeles clubs such as Lennon Fog and Whiskey A Go Go, Ray Manzarek attended UCLA's film school, where he met fellow film student Jim Morrison. While at UCLA, credited as Raymond D. Manzarek, he created the student film Evergreen about a jazz musician and his romance with an art student played by Manzarek's then girlfriend and future wife Dorothy Fujikawa. Manzarek was always a huge fan of the potential of cinema. He once noted film as the art form of the 20th century, combining photograph, music, acting, writing, everything. Everything that I was interested in all came together with that one art form. In Evergreen, which has been called a 12-minute West Coast cool jazz cinematic trist, one can definitely spot the difference, spot the influence, excuse me, of the French New Wave and filmmakers such as Jean-Luc Godard. The film's title reportedly comes from the Beat Literary Magazine, The Evergreen Review, and Evergreen features music by Herbie Mann, the Bill Evans Trio, and the Jazz Crusaders. The location shots of mid-1960s Los Angeles compromise or comprise a magical time capsule of their own. Fujikawa sums up the impact of film on Manzarek and Morrison. I think film informed his work and Jim's work throughout their musical careers, she said. They always thought of their songs as cinematic expressions. They were always sort of little stories that were dramatic and told a story with music, and that way they were cinematic songs. The film has been digitally restored by the UCLA Film and Television Archive. Cool. Good. Cool. Yeah. Good. What's next? What's next, Kyle? From 1970, we have Requiem 29. This sounds like the kind of thing that I would go, well, of course, it was made by Jim McDougal, a filmmaker who exposed film to light while cutting his arm or some shit like that, but I don't know. I truly, I don't know what this is. Is it an experimental film or is it a narrative or? It looks more like another student film. So UCLA's Ethnocommunications Program's first collective student film had intended to cast the East Los Angeles Chicano Moratorium against the war in Vietnam, August 29th, 1970. But the film turns into a requiem for slain journalists and movement icon Ruben Salazar. The film shows footage of the march, the brutal police response and resulting chaos and interspersed with scenes from the rather callous and superficial inquest. Filmmakers attached to the project have confirmed that the original elements for the film disappeared over 40 years ago. The UCLA Film and Television Archive has facilitated a 4K scan of the surviving faded 16mm print for preservation purposes and hopes to turn this provisional work into a full restoration effort. Wow. Okay, that sounds great. Um, I also love that they're specifically citing who's preserving these films. Yeah, I don't think they've they've done that before. 
and that is a lot of it seems like it's it's as much restoration and reclamation as as preservation. Um, that actually, I mean, I know I know Ruben Salazar, but I did I'd never heard of this film. That's super interesting. I mean, that feels like one of those ones. I nominated Huelga uh, last year, and that was just something that I found that was like seemingly buried in some archive somewhere. And I, this sounds kind of the same that it's something that that deserves to be seen and hasn't been. So I think that's great. I'm I'm of two minds on this. One, very cool. Two, student films, no good. Don't like them. Never do them. That's what you get when you go to film school. You end up hating other. You just hate watching student films. So, I mean, yay, but also, ugh. next. Um, you know, I mean, these probably aren't using the same classical composition every. Yeah, day. well, I'm gonna stick my foot in the, just dig my heels in and say no, thank you. Next. All right. What's Very next? Well. All right. From 1971, we have the murder of Fred Hampton. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean okay. that. Uh, I mean that makes sense in terms of. I mean, obviously, uh, with Judas and the Black Messiah coming out this past year, it makes sense that people were going back to this documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and um, I think it's... All the cop stuff in the last two years, uh, the awareness of all that shit. Uh, yeah, definitely feels like that. And, uh, you know, like we said, the continued uh, pretty much uh, di- diversification of their inductees, because... Uh, it's been a few entries since we got to Hitchcock, you know. And if you're preserving history, I mean, you know, yeah. uh, preserving, you know, these documentaries are a great way not only to induct, uh, you know, a, a well-made film, but also to ensure that you are preserving historically important footage. Like last year, Freedom Riders getting in, that's not just recognizing the film, but that's also making sure that you are preserving the footage. Wait, yeah, yeah, because... Where the fuck do you find documentaries and shit like that? There's no, there's no streaming service with that. Like even Criterion, as good as they they are, then I mean you're not finding like a lot of documentaries on there. You're not getting shit on HBO Max. You know, uh, it, there's not really a great physical media presence for documentaries, even with all the boutique labels that exist these days. There needs to be the you know an intent, a purposeful intent of keeping this shit from disappearing forever. So, uh, you know, or being actively suppressed too, like, you know, that's the other factor is, is inarguably for whatever else there is and for whatever qualms anyone could have with the the federal government, the U S government, anything like that, a a documentary, uh, a a film that is, uh, direct about the suppression of Fred Hampton and the movement he represented is now preserved by the library of Congress. It's an, it's an inarguable entity now you know it can't be written off as some kind of loose change style you know crank youtube clip you know um yeah this is this is a thing we uh, that we have to confront now so i think that's that's great it's a good choice it's an interesting year so far i'm very intrigued and we haven't really we haven't hit really any of the big ones kyle was teasing to me like oh you haven't heard of the big ones and I, i i haven't but we haven't hit them yet so i'm that who knows what that means i can't wait for them to finally induct jade (laughs) <laughs> William Friedkin's 90s masterpiece with David Caruso Jade be like David Caruso and Jade best joke in 40 year old virgin alright Kyle from, what's next from 1972 we have Pink Flamingos yeah baby this is one I knew That's about and I'm so happy surprising that it's not already in oh my god I know I've been well Tom I have said on episodes of our show like explicitly, like it's infuriating me that there's no John Waters in the registry. It's insane. Right, well, there's no John okay. Waters in the registry. 
Okay, um, again, do you know me? You think I'm listening to you? No, I know. And not only I'm listening to you, I'm ingesting it yeah. in my mind to remember at later dates. Yeah. Still, like, it is crazy. It's it's insane. And I was actually, I have written down for one film we're going to cover in season two, my registry pick for that film was going to be Pink Flamingos because it's, not only is it this insanely transgressive film, not only is it one of the most important midnight movies of all time, like the entire idea of cult movies, as we call them now, um, yeah. you know, in between something like Eraserhead and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the film that marks that transition is Pink Flamingos, this radically transgressive film that also, I mean, we talk a lot about films that capture and represent certain communities and there's something about the fact that waters films captured the the lgbt scene in baltimore but not in a way that was documentary and not in a way that was necessarily flattering but was actively transgressive you know i mean pink flamingos goes out of its way to be the most shocking film of all time uh, but instead of being like one of those films now that are just these very male-driven, uh, like uh, bad slasher movies and things, where it's like, oh, it's so disturbing. It's not disturbing in that you're watching uh, pretty young women get just uh, murdered all the time. It's transgressive in that it's dealing with themes that people would find upsetting. the The sound quality is is iffy, and it ultimately ends, uh, despite the plot already ending, uh, and uh, the entire plot being. Uh, Divine's mission to become the most filthy woman alive uh, ends with her just eating um, dog excrement. And not prop stuff, just literally picking up dog excrement off the sidewalk and eating it on camera just to upset and rattle people. I, I think John Waters is a, is a phenomenal filmmaker um, who is just he just hasn't made anything since... Um, the the Tracy Ullman movie that I'm forgetting now uh, is it Low Down Dirty Shame something I think Dirty it's Shame Dirty Work no Dirty, dirty Work shame. is the dirty, shame. Dirty, dirty Work is the Norm Macdonald movie um, uh, yeah dirty shame. yeah Dirty Shame with Johnny Knoxville and all uh, he's an incredible filmmaker polyester uh, multiple maniacs he's got a number of films that should be in the registry um, but Pink Flamingos is the one that absolutely has to be and I'm so glad it's in that's uh, this is this makes me very happy uh, we love you John make another movie. Also from 1972, Sounder. So, Tom, do you know Sounder? Uh, no. Tom, you would fucking love Sounder. So, Sounder, the reason I know Sounder, I actually watched it recently because uh, we're doing an episode on The Godfather this season. And the Best Picture nominee is the year of The Godfather. Is The Godfather obviously wins Best Picture. Uh, there's Cabaret, which I've seen many times. Um, the Immigrants, the, um, the Swedish film. Uh, Deliverance. And then the fifth nominee is Sounder. I knew nothing about Sounder before this year. Um, I it's a boy. It's one of those a boy and his dog movies, uh, which is not my bag. As much as Old Yeller makes me cry, like I'm not a boy and his dog movie type. But the thing about this is, it is it is an African American boy and his dog movie. It is an indictment of the American prison system and American prejudice, while also being a boy and his dog movie. Um, and I'm telling you, Tom, that it just is about as far up your alley as a movie can get. There's, uh, getting angry at the injustice of the system and also a dog doing things. You're sold. This is, this is for you. Sounder is your gem. I'm with it. I'm there. I'm all for it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Keep, 
Keep get keep making people mad because it's another black movie. I want these fucks to get mad. Be mad. Stay mad, you fools. Yeah, Sounder is is uh, it's it's yeah it's a it's very good. Uh, I'm looking right now. If people are listening, oh, Cicely Tyson. That's right. Cicely Tyson gives an amazing performance. Paul Winfield uh, was up for I think best actor that year. He's very good. Taj Mahal, uh, the great blues musician, did the score. Folks, check it out. Seriously, um, I think it's apparently streaming for free on Tubi right now. So if you're going to watch anything, just like make the effort. Watch Sounder. It's very good. Uh, check it out. From uh, 1973, we have The Long Goodbye. Ooh. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Tom, why don't you, you, you talk Long Goodbye. Uh, you're, you're, you know, this is your jam. Oh, I don't know if I I would go that far. But More I mean, so than me um, in terms of Altman movies. Like, I, I it, you know, in terms of top Altman films. Well, I think we're kind of on the same page with this movie in that it's okay. not our favorite Altman movie. Um, but it's but definitely... it's uh, yeah, Nashville, yeah, Nashville's already in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting movie. It's Altman transporting um, the Philip Marlowe character to the 70s and kind of uh, doing it traditional noir story but doing it in his altman way where it's kind of not really the point and it's more about uh elliot gould as philip marlowe as kind of like this disenchanted guy who's like stuck out of time and is just not fitting in with the changing of the guard and everything uh it's a movie that's definitely influenced a lot of stuff after it i mean most specifically because i threw it on yesterday after watching licorice pizza uh you know you, you watch inherent vice or yeah. read inherent vice i'm sure pinch in and by uh default uh pta uh, definitely ingested this movie in a big way uh you know big lepowski definitely uh i'm sure shane black loves this he did the you know his entire career is about you know upturning the noir narratives on its head and kind of poking it in the ribs but still like in, in, in having fun with it um it, it's not that i would say it's a bad movie it's definitely a movie i also want to watch again because it's been a while and i you know just being humans our tastes change we can maybe like this stuff a little more since we last seen it uh you know it's it's a good movie it's altman so it's definitely worth it just for the uh completionists uh but yeah, I mean the impact I, it's yeah. had is huge. It's like it's also said. for I don't I don't want to speculate on the persuasions of any of our listeners. Um, so if this applies to you, great. If it it doesn't, doesn't. But I will say, inarguably, um, the long goodbye is peak peak sexy Elliot Gould. Oh yeah, like the you know, it's it's I, I it's Elliot Gould's one of those guys who like maybe you turn to somebody and go like, oh, he was considered hot, and they'd be like, I don't know. But you watch the long goodbye, and the dude is just playing his harmonica, and you're just like, I get it, I I get why Elliot Gould, you know, peak and, peak hot Elliot Gould in the long goodbye, and also first cinematic appearance of Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's true. That's true. Yeah, with a mustache as he stares right into the camera because nobody told him don't look in the camera. Christ, I haven't watched Long Goodbye since college, and I, I now I want to rewatch it. Like now I I, 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 I want to rewatch. It. It. I think I bought it for my Altman collection. So Guys, do you want to... Uh, this is not worth talking about on mic, but do you guys want to get together and just watch Long Goodbye <laughs> soon? Like, all three of us are in the same state now. Let's get together and watch Long Goodbye. Kyle? Okay. I mean, yeah, right, sure. Good. I mean, I definitely... I, you know, it's going to be a bit. Got to watch the Matrix movies and uh, some yeah, well, stuff. But... Okay, 2022, two things I can promise people. We are putting out season two of You're Missing Out, and me, Kyle, and Tom are going to get together and watch The Long Goodbye. There we go. 
Absolutely. Yes, I promise. We're definitely doing on it. the record. We're doing it. Uh, all right. Uh, next on our list from 1975, we have Cooley High. Yeah. Okay. okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's a, that's a good choice. I was exposed to Cooley High um, for the first time because uh, Spike Lee speaks very highly of it. You know, I think it's on his syllabus that he does. Uh, and while I am not the biggest, you know, I always complain about not liking quote unquote coming of age films. Cooley High is very fun. It's an incredible uh, soundtrack. And the movie is also, without saying much, like it goes, it's a little like what we did season one with The Learning Tree, where if you're watching it and you're not really paying attention, it's easy to look at it and just think of it as like fluff. But if you're paying attention, you notice it takes some 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 dark turns. Um, as obviously, like uh, Spike Lee has talked about this film very highly. John Singleton has talked about this film very highly. It's a hugely important and influential film, and um, uh, you know, uh, I think yeah, most importantly, uh, Boys to Men's first album is Cooley High Harmony, named after this film. So you know, if nothing else, but no, Cooley High rules. Uh, good, I think Garrett Morris is in it. Am I looking? This up? Yes, is. Garrett Morris is in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, great soundtrack. Uh, great, great. Film. I mean, yeah, this guy, this guy would go on to direct Car Wash. You better know his soundtracks. Yeah, ha- have you seen Cooley High, Tom? No, I've heard of it. I haven't yeah, seen it. Yeah, another oh, another one. Also, I think you'd dig immensely. Also, gonna say it. I think they put this in not just for the impact of the movie itself. I'm thinking they're putting it in because they need to get some sort of tangential connection to the Last Dragon. <laughs> and this guy would go on to direct the last dragon oh so, my god yeah so while, i never uh, uh, yeah wow while they're not gonna outright put the last dragon in because they're cowards this is as far as they'll go i got a i got a crazier yes. one for you he also directed sergeant pepper's only hearts command and more interesting he directed bust and loose uh bust and loose is a movie where richard Pryor drives a school bus full of children uh and one of the children is blind. Uh, there's a little kid in it who's blind in Bust and Loose, and that man went on to be my high school history teacher. Yes, that's right. I remember you telling me that. That means yeah. that means little to our listeners, but Mr. Hughes was an exceptional teacher. So shout out to you, uh, Jim Hughes, if you are listening to, to our roundup. Yes. Well, okay. Coolly uh, high. Good call. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Next on our list from 1979. Richard Pryor live in concert. There we go. Hell yes. Yes. Yeah, there we go. We love to see it. We love to see it. Richard Pryor. Oh, yes. We're doing it. We're fucking doing it. Richard Pryor, the best stand-up of all time. His best stand-up special of all time. Makes every goddamn stand-up comedian working today. That's basically just making the audience their therapist because, oh, you know, comedy's hard. You know, you got to get up here and sometimes people don't like you. Yeah, Richard Pryor lit his ass on fire. And still kept doing comedy, you absolute clowns. This is insightful. It's funny. He does character work. He does like it's like all kinds of stand-up comedy in one, but it's just so it's it's a masterclass. In in ways that like even, you know, some of the others, like 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 his his uh you know, his peer at the time, George Carlin, who's probably number two stand-up of all time, just never got to like what Richard could do, which is truly truly immerse you into a new world and bring characters to life on stage and make it funny and honest and heartbreaking but never dour you're always laughing and you are always 
surprised at what this guy is saying and how he can make it funny. It's it's I I put this movie on all the time. I listen to this shit on my phone all the time. It's the best. I'm fucking I'm thrilled. Richard Pryor is in here. I had only seen like three or four of the titles that are in that got in this year before we recorded this episode because I saw it on Twitter. This was one of them, and I have spent this entire record like a dad on Christmas waiting for their kid to get to the N64 <laughs> package where I'm just like, every time Kyle goes 1970, I'm like, is this it? Is this it? Is this what I knew Tom oh, would be? would be so fucking elated about this. I think this is a great choice, not just because it's arguably the greatest stand-up comedy film of all time, but it also further broadens the definition of what the registry can include. You know? Yes. I mean, the fact that a stand-up special um, is in is great. It's also recognition of Richard Pryor and his effect on comedy. Yeah, I mean, look at like, like I like I I kind of made a joke about it, but like every comedian is trying to do the honest comedy yeah. thing that Richard really set forth, and like it it's just goes to the fact that nobody can do what Richard did the way Richard did it. It's just the the you know it's it's such a shame he died you know almost twenty years ago at this point because you would love to see what he would do as the world got crazier and crazier around him. And to see all of the comedians that are so clearly indebted to him that you really only started seeing in like the 21st century. Because I don't feel like a lot of the 90s guys and the 80s guys were really maybe Eddie Murphy was the closest. But yeah, I mean, just just in terms of sheer impact, obviously, this has to go in there. But it's also a case of it's it's as good as its impact is impactful. You know, it's just it's perfect. And I think it also pairs well with another entrant in terms of like. If you're trying to chronicle American humor and the evolution yes. of American humor, obviously Will Rogers is a crucial figure in that. And there's certain things where it's like if you're trying to understand American comedy, there's a couple of names that like you have to hit. And Will Rogers is one. Um, Moms Mabley, Lenny Bruce, um, you know, and and Richard Pryor is of course one of them. And then the fact that you have this film which is his his best film and i again i there is at the very least an argument to be made this is the greatest stand greatest stand-up comedy film of all time um oh yeah i think i think tom and i would would say that it is but i'm just saying like i think it's on everybody's list it's it's yeah it's 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 like the evergreen stand-up special like it's the one that's going to be on every list and you know, uh, like you said, the history of comedy, like, you know, George Carlin might have been arrested for obscenity for saying the 730 words you can't say on TV shit shit. But I mean, nobody heard what Richard was saying before. Just the just yeah. the casual way he was like he brought how black people in this country actually talk to each other onto the stage. And it was shocking to people, but he made it. He never dulled his sensibilities, but he made it in a way where you could still listen to it, and like you, white people would go to well, his stand-up. That's the like, key thing. That's the, yeah. the thing that the the limit, like the key to what makes that special so good, and what makes Pryor so significant, is there is obviously a rich history of of black comedy in America um, that just never got white attention. Right? I mean, you know, yeah. you've got Moms Mabley, you've mm-hmm. got. Um, uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, Pigmeat Markham is a name that, like, most uh, white people have never heard. 
but for arguably you don't even get the entire genre of rap music unless you look at pig meat markham's uh here comes the judge uh you know that's hugely important uh red fox things like that but richard pryor could do what he was doing and not tweak himself and not change anything and yet white audiences were showing up and he has that great line in i'm pretty sure it's this special maybe i'm wrong but when he was talking about human civilization beginning in africa yeah. and he has that and he goes you know scientists determined that uh that uh human civilization began in africa white scientists so now you see the white guys in the audience going well i guess it's true then you know like that was kind of his <laughs> he was so yeah. good with that and he was very good about kind of yeah i mean look he's he's uh, there is a strong argument made this is the greatest stand-up special of all time there's a very strong argument to be made that Richard Pryor is the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. So, yes, I think this is a great suggestion. Uh, I knew this one was going to go uh, – we were going to go long on this one for that. Love it. Um, Good job, guys. And, and, <laughs> and what's great is we we still have one more gift for Tom under the tree. Anyway. Oh, um, oh uh, boy. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. So, uh, I, already, I already got pink flamingos. The rest of this could be anything. I don't care. I think is I, it, I, is, I, is it Jade? <laughs> it's it, it is not it is not jade no unfortunately, it's weirdly the curse time. of the jade scorpion which is a weird choice for many reasons but we're here oh no they're they're breaking their rules they're putting in west side story right now we we have to <laughs> we have to wait a little longer for it but but we are going to move on so uh same year 1979 uh we have chicana interesting i don't i i'm not familiar with this i'm assuming is it a documentary kyle it looks like another. Yeah, it looks like another student film, maybe. Let's see. So, for producer director Silvia Morales created *Chicana*, a 22-minute collage of artworks, stills, documentary footage, narration, and testimonies, to provide a counterpart to earlier film accounts of Mexican and Mexican American history that all but erased women's lives from their narratives, centering on successive stru- successive struggles by women from the pre-Columbian era to the present to combat exploitation, break out of cultural stereotypes, and organize for national independence, women's education, and the rights of workers, Chicana resurrects an arresting array of proto-feminist icons to inspire Chicana feminists with role models from their cultural past. In 1977, Morales, an artist and cinematographer who had worked at KABC in Los Angeles and was enrolled in UCLA's film school, became enthralled with a slideshow created by Chicano studies artist, teacher Ana Nieto-Gomez, that included a history of Mexican women of which Morales, Morales was unaware. With Nieto Gomez's support, Morales conducted additional resource with Cynthia Onesto, hired composer Carmen Moreno to score the film, and renowned actress Carmen, Carmen Zapota to narrate it, shot documentary footage, and recorded interviews with Chicana activists Dolores Huerta, Alicia Escalante, and Francisca Flores to incorporate as voiceovers into the film. Acknowledged as a brilliant and pioneering feminist Latina critic, critic, Chicana has served as a stepping stone for Morales' distinguished career as a writer and director of acclaimed cable and public television documentary and fiction productions. UCLA has digitally scanned the best surviving picture sources for interim preservation purposes and hopes to turn this provisional work into a full restoration effect. So a lot of UCLA stuff, it seems like. Well, I think that's good. I'm looking at this right now. So this is available on home video. It's distributed by... Uh, women make movies. Uh, I like women make movies. I actually bought um, last year. There was an inductee that they distribute. Uh, if you guys remember, uh, Devil Never Sleeps, the Mexican American Co. production. That, yes, yes, yes. That Kyle yeah. read the description for, and Tom just went cool, uh, like, <laughs> and not sarcastically, just genuinely like good. Yes. Yeah. Um, this feels like another one of those. So I'm probably, uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm probably ordering this by the end of the day. I'm very, I like it uh, a lot. Uh, this sounds very interesting, and. Um, yeah, cool. I, I'm all in for it. I think it's great. 
Cool. Uh, also from 1979, we have the Wobblies. Wobblies. Excuse me. Hang the on. Wobblies. Oh, hang on. Is this um? I'm so I'm gonna take a shot in the dark. So this is a documentary, right? Uh, it looks like it. Yeah. Yes. So this is about this is about the labor. Um, this is about the what is it? Worldwide workers. The, yeah, the industrial workers of the world. Industrial workers of the world. Yeah. So that was a a a a, a significant labor movement. That was uh, I I know it mostly because um, uh, Allen Ginsberg invokes the Wobblies in his poem America, and I just remember him saying like listening reading it as a young kid and then listening to him read it and just hearing like I'm sympathetic to the Wobblies and being like what in the fuck is the Wobblies? So I'm not familiar with this film, but I am familiar with the Wobblies. So uh, did you did you see in the description? Did you see anything of note about it? Anything that makes you go like, oh yeah, well, okay. I'm uh, yeah, I can read the description for oh, you sure. guys. It sure. looks like founded in Chicago in 1905, the industrial workers of the world took to organizing unskilled workers into one big union and changed the course of American history. This compelling documentary of the IWW or the Wobblies, as they were known, tells the story of workers in factories, sawmills, wheat fields, forests, mines, and on the docks as they organize and demand better wages healthcare, overtime pay, and safer working conditions. In some respects, men and women, black and white, skilled and unskilled workers joining a union and speaking their minds seems so long ago, but in other ways, the film mirrors today's headlines, depicting a nation torn by corporate greed. Filmmakers Deborah Schaefer and Stuart Bird weave history, archival film footage, interviews with former workers now in their 80s and 90s, cartoons, original art, and classic wobbly songs, many written by Joe Hill, to pay tribute to the legacy of these rebels who paved the way and risked their lives for the many of the rights that we still have today. The film was restored by the Museum of Modern Art. A couple things interesting there. Number one, I think that parallels really well with uh, later this season, We're doing in season two, we're doing Harlan County, USA, which is obviously a stirring depiction of a labor dispute. Also, I feel like in our early seasons, you know, in season one and season two, the descriptions of these movies are all very uh, staid and very, uh, you know, uh, dry and just, this film has great images. And now they're just directly being like, everything's fucked. <laughs> the American labor system is in crisis. Everything's yeah. awful. Fuck the world. Everything's bad. Burn it down. Who cares? Also, most interesting thing is, man, Stephen King's son really gets around, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, Joe Hill. Yeah, Joe, Joe Hill is his, is his is Stephen King's son's author. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> interesting, the Wobblies. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, another thing that's worth noting is like, virtually all of these not every single one obviously there's baby jane but virtually all of these seem like there's a, a response to something going on now a response to the national climate and also like and I, obviously we've got more to go and we're moving into the you know the most recent years but thus far like in in terms of like mainstream movies you've just got like baby jane strangers on a train we haven't there's nothing that's like one of those big like populist choices yet i'm sure there's at least one or two coming up in the next batch um from the way kyle has hinted at it um but yeah thus far it's been a real effort to kind of uncover things i think it's very cool but but also like not at least the way it sounds to me like annoyingly like artistic and obtuse like abstract art It, it all sounds like shit that was just not mainstream because well, it was for black people or made yeah. by black people, yeah. you know, because this country is great. So, yeah, everything's bad. Everything sucks. Next. What's next, Kyle? All right. Uh, yep. You called it uh, from 1983. And to round out the original trilogy, we have Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Back. Okay. 
Um, that was one that I almost nominated in season one. Uh, I came very close to nominating um, to round out the trilogy, really. And also because mm-hmm. I'm the rare maniac that uh, likes Return of the Jedi more than Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it was the first time Star Wars fumbled the trilogy. Um, <laughs> All right. So we All have right. to honor that. Um, you know, because if Star no. Wars, if Star Wars started blockbuster culture, <laughs> it started franchise culture. It also started ending your franchise badly. Uh, I kid. Return of the Jedi is great. It's not as good as the first two, despite what Mike wants to say, because he, you know, drinks himself stupid and watches <laughs> Disney Plus in the morning. But, what if this um, is all? A pl- what if this is all a ploy for the Library of Congress to go, George? Give us the footage of Yubnub. Yeah. What if that's what there's like? It's inducted, but we need the original actor. We're taking out that Hayden ghost. We want the original actor. We want Yubnub. George walks in. With, George walks in with all, with the, the 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 cans of the original cut of Return of the Jedi, and then they just then he re- he realizes it's in an empty room, and he goes, "Oh no!" And they shoot him in the head because I'm making a Goodfellas reference. And they say, "Never again, George. None of this editing shit." Yub nub. Fucking Hayden. No, I, I Return of the Jedi's Return of the Jedi's a blast. I mean, you know, people like to dunk on Return of the Jedi just you know for what it was, and it's got the you know the Ewoks and they called teddy bears and crap like that. But when you think about it, like the Ewoks entirety rule, of the, by the way, the Ewoks rule. The entirety of the Jabba sequence. I mean, everything with the sand barge and the sarlacc. There, I mean, there's, it's just... there's great shit in it. That's the th- like. That's the listen. There, the second act is clear. No one knew what to do with the second act. Han yeah. Solo has nothing to do in the movie. Harrison Ford is clearly lost because they gave him nothing to do. It's a lot of wheel spinning. It, and it's not even that the Ewoks are, because they don't. They're little Vietnamese terrorists, and I love them. Um, they're monsters. I love it. They're great. I'm not even being ironic. It's They're fucking awesome. To be clear, for anyone it's... listening, George was basing the Ewoks on the Viet Cong. Tom is not claiming that that the actual no. Ewoks are all No, they literally, <laughs> they literally fight like Vietnamese yeah. soldiers. Yes. No, and I it's am. great. They are hardcore. It's it, it's just the fact that, like I said, the second act is be- is not great. And while the Ewoks are good, it, there's a lot of bad kitty humor in the stuff in, in like that segment where they're like, oh, no, they're going to eat us. Whoa. It's like, all right, George, come on, relax. Let's get to the good stuff where, you know, Vader's fighting Luke and then, you know, they're fighting the Death Star again. And there's the the the, the Endor uh, base attack. You know, there's great shit in it. There's no doubt about it. But yeah. it is one where. Yeah, if you're being honest with yourself, the second act not great, but, but it was as Joe the... Dante said on a podcast yesterday. I listened to you can make up with a great ending, and boy howdy, does Return of the Jedi have a great goddamn ending. Plus, it's just it's you gotta preserve it. If you're if you're preserving yeah. two, you gotta preserve the third. I think that that's yeah. This isn't yeah. Rise of Skywalker where you just forget it. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. What? This yeah, I'm sorry. What? I don't know what you're referring what was to. That movie, The Rise of uh, Skywalker. Yeah, not uh, it's apparently a movie where an orphan girl is told she's actually important, and then she decides to, after finally getting the family she always wanted, uh, live alone on a desert planet again. All right, yeah. Kyle, what's next? What's next after Return all of right, Jedi? That's very interesting. It's all right. It's time. It's time to open Tom's uh, last gift. Um, okay. I'm gonna give Tom. I'm gonna give you the year, and you're gonna give me the movie. Okay. This right. is what? Okay. It's 1984. Oh, 1984. I mean, 1984 is kind of like a classically good mo- movie year. 
Okay. Um, but why is it a good movie year? No. What? Did they do it? Kyle, did they do it? Did they do what? <laughs> did they do it, bitch? Did they do what, Tom? Oh my god! It, bitch. Oh my god! Really? <laughs> Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street! On Elm oh my Street, god! Bitch. Welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> Welcome I to am... the natural film registry, bitch. Okay, wait, can I tell you? Yes! That? Can I tell you the craziest part of that? Amazing. As Tom is guessing, and I have no idea what it's going to be, I am staring at my desk, and on my desk right now are two patches. One says Never Sleep Again, the other says Elm Street, and there is also a pin for Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, all of which are mm-hmm. left over from when we appeared on podcasts like it's 1999's Patreon. Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street is in the red. Hell yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great choice. Yeah. It's a perfect choice. I'm just It's, it's also another, surprised. like, I'm, to me, honestly, it's kind of crazy, like the Pink Flamingos one, that it took this long to get in. But I get it. Horror movies always kind of get a little short shrift with any sort of recognition-based, you know, wow. stuff like this. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's like, and it's a weird movie in the sense that it's so impactful in the way that you literally can't copy it without everyone saying, oh, they're just doing that. Yeah. It's not like Halloween where you could like, oh, we do like they're ripping off Halloween, but like they're putting their own twist on. It's like, if you do someone getting killed in their dreams, you go, well, yeah, it's just Nightmare on Elm Street. Come on. Like, what, what are we doing here? You guys couldn't think of anything else. Uh, it's a perfect movie. We talked about it. God, was that a month or two months ago on podcast? Like it's 1989. Not sure about Elm Street Five. Yeah, it was. It was for Halloween. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, it was October, two months ago. Uh, you know, we talked about it then about how Wes Craven seemingly was the only guy who knew how to make good Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, it's. I mean, it's just a great movie. It's. It's. You know, like all the best horror movies. It's. You could watch it with your brain shut off, but you could also think deeper on it because Wes Craven was such a smart guy. It's a smart movie about, uh, you know, kind of the fallacy of the suburbs, about uh, the broken family unit, all that stuff. It's about, you know, justice. The American justice system's kind of uh, not great and how we kind of put, say, we believe in the justice system, but when things don't go our way, we, you know, throw guys in a boiler room and light them on fire. Even if he deserves it, it's going to end up biting you in the ass if you don't actually do the right thing in life um you know you got robert england's truly like i said on ninth the podcast with the guys that i think robert england's so iconic as freddy krueger it's kind of i feel like one of the things they're kind of worried about with making a new one because it's just like it's it's just he is freddy krueger as much as he's Wes craven's creation robert england brought him to life and made that burnt up freak the iconic character that we love to watch to this day um and for more on our thoughts about freddy for more about thoughts on our our thoughts on freddy krueger uh pay phil liscove and kenny neibart five bucks a month to listen to us talk about the franchise um and and also uh, look at us oh yeah for ten dollars for ten dollars you can look at us um oh wow and i am wearing one of us is a good idea it's so I it's so upsetting because I am now 15 pounds lighter than I was when we did that. And it's deeply upsetting to look at. And I look pretty much the same from the way they record me because I've just put on a lot of muscle, but I don't look different. I still look like a heavy metal roadie. <laughs> yes. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, fucking rules. Thank you. Very Thank good. you, boys. Yeah. And, and, and don't worry, Mike. We, we still have one more gift for you. Uh, really? On this list okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So we're going to move on uh, to number 20. 
1984, we have Stop Making Sense. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Jonathan Demme, concert film about the talking heads. I love me some talking heads. Great movie. A nice uh, 180 for these current choices because it is the whitest movie ever made. <laughs> um, um, burning but down. yeah. Yeah, no, Stop Making Sense is, you know how I, we were saying earlier that there's an argument to be made that, that you know, Richard Pryor had the greatest stand-up film of all time. There is a strong argument to be made that Stop Making Sense is the greatest concert film of all time. It's one of the things. Yeah, everyone it so, says it. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, am I, do I love Last Waltz? I love Last Waltz dearly. I, I think that, you know, and it's my pick per se, but the thing about Stop Making Sense is so impressive is Jonathan Demme was able to take a band as weird as the Talking Heads, as hard to pin down as the Talking Heads, and capture what it was like to see them in concert. Like, part of the problem you have with a lot of concert films uh, is that either the band isn't terribly visually interesting, so you have to make up for it, uh, and I don't know, add some fantasy sequences of people riding horses or something. Or they are interesting to watch in a way that kind of only translates to the stage and not the screen. But there's something about the simplicity of Stop Making Sense and the way that he shoots it that just, you, f- you feel it. You feel the electricity of, I get why this band was, was a group that people said you have to go see them. And, you know, I mean, obviously David Byrne right now is on Broadway doing um, his show that Spike Lee filmed uh, and this incredible version of it as well. But, yeah, this is this is just a, a landmark concert film. Very good choice. Awesome. Let me move on to 1987. Who killed Vincent Chin? No, who killed Vincent Chin? It's a that's a documentary, right? Yeah, actually, here, let me double check here. Ah, here we go. In 1982, Vincent Chin, a 27-year-old Chinese-American, was beaten to death with a baseball bat in Detroit by two white auto workers. Detroit during that period was a cauldron of racism against Asian-Americans amid the decline of the U.S. auto industry as Americans elected to buy Japanese cars. Those who killed Chin likely assumed he was Japanese. In the end, the two men were found guilty of manslaughter, but given probated sentences and served no jail time. Directors Christine Choi and Renee Tajima Pena's Academy Award-nominated documentary examines this appalling miscarriage of justice and the multiple issues it raises, including how irresponsible media can increase the risk of violence against ethnic minority communities. According to co-director Choi, the film's key elements involve, one, this being one of the very first civil rights case in civil rights case involving an Asian America, two, how the case mobilized many Asian Americans in the country, three, Though the Chin side lost the case, but also raised an incredible amount of consciousness about the civil rights issue involving all people of color, and for the ultimate question of why the system failed and what have we learned from this. The film was restored by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Film Archive and the Film Foundation. That's that's super. So I, I have, sounds I have like a st- great time at the theaters. I can't wait to watch this and just feel good. Yeah, well, here's here's the best news uh, for y'all. It it lost to an equally sad documentary. Because uh, I've seen this. I, I haven't, I'm sorry, I should rephrase. I have seen this title. I haven't seen the film, but I was on a, an, a mission. I still am to try and watch every Best Documentary winner and all the Oscar winners and all. And I remember this stood out to me because it lost Best Documentary to Hotel Terminus, The Life and Times of Klaus Barbie, which is the, um, the Marcel Ophuls film, which I think... They kind of not nothing against Hotel Terminus. They kind of gave this to Marcel Ophuls because they didn't give an Oscar to The Sorrow and the Pity, which is the Ophuls Holocaust documentary that everybody knows. 
but so this was something that uh, seemingly, uh, at least by some accounts, like should have won were it not for being up against the Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman of documentaries. Um, so who gives a decision I haven't seen, but I, I definitely want to check out. Can't wait to laugh the entire time because it sounds like such a fun, uplifting movie. Tom, Thank nothing you. they nothing they have picked, like almost nothing they've picked so far is is. Uh, I mean, listen, the picks they're making are mostly reflective of the times we live in, and there's yeah. little fun about the times we live in. Yeah, I know. Still, okay. What's next, Kyle? All right, Mike. Uh, I have your. Oh, uh, okay. I have your. I have your little morsel here. I'm not going to make you guess the year anyway, because actually, this was one of your registry picks. What? Wait. Yes. We got one in. You got one in. We got one in. You got one. You got. Not only did you get oh. one in, it's one. It's one that I never would have. Oh, I'll put it this way: of your list, it's the one I probably would list as the bottom of most likely. Really. Do you want to take a guess and figure oh out which out of your list it is? I'm so fucking... Well, wait. We sometime after 87. Wait, we really got one in? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I Hell just yeah. double-checked before I recorded. This is the only one of the list that was in. Whoa, we got one in. Okay, let's take a moment, guys. We got, we got a movie in the registry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't all us. I'm certainly not suggesting that, but, like, that's fucking cool. All right, so this is after the 80s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I'm I'm gonna guess it's either Tongues Untied or Watermelon Woman. It's Watermelon Woman. Yeah, hell yes, I love that fucking. Oh my god, I love Watermelon Woman. Um, my partner and I just went to. We were at the Nighthawk to see um House of Gucci, and during their pre-show, they played a clip of Watermelon Woman, and all I kept doing was going, "This movie's this movie's so good." And then during House of Gucci, going, "I wish I was watching Watermelon Woman instead." Uh, Watermelon Woman is, is, I mean, I've talked about it. I talked about it on our podcast. Uh, you can go back and listen to, I believe it's our sunrise episode, uh, where I talk about my love for this movie. Um, that's, oh, that's wonderful. That makes me, that, that Cheryl Dunn, that makes me so happy. I'm, uh, oh my God. You, we got one in, we've got three more to go. And surprisingly, they're the three that I've seen circulated around headlines the most, but you guys have somehow avoided. So I, I commend you. Are you ready? Um, yeah, I'm still in the glow of we got one on, but yeah, that's also true too. If we want to, if we want to, you know, just enjoy that for a little bit, oh I know god. nothing about Watermelon Woman, so I'm Watch glad we it. got it. It's so good. Yeah. Oh my god, it, I love it so much. This, I'm so happy. It's like my kid just got into college. I'm delighted. <laughs> I can't, I'm, yeah, this is good. All of this is good. Okay, all of it's um, all of it is good, and it's only going to get better, I think. We'll see. I'll be curious to see both okay. of your reactions to these next few, so. All right. From 1997, Selena. Ooh. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I feel like Selena has come up on the show before. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's the kind of film that is, uh, you know, I mean, I, it's one of those ones that most people have seen. Um, you know, it was about a, a major figure, um, particularly in uh you know in in the latino community uh obviously selena was was a major star uh and yeah it was a film that it's weird i i have i have seen selena in full once i have seen it a million times because i feel like for a decade plus that movie was on cable constantly right like i feel like that was it was on cable constantly and it was one that like most people stopped and watched 
obviously, you know, every, you know, so many people have the soundtrack and the movie. And I, I it's weird. I, I, trying to call that movie to memory, all I think of is the, I just picture the ending of, of her singing. I think the song's here in my room. I don't remember the, the title of the song, but I, I can picture the ending vividly. Yeah. I mean, that, that feels like one of those picks that, aside from recognizing one of the, uh, one of those pivotal died too young musical artists in the same way that La Bamba is in the registry um, in the same way that there, there's so many of those music biopics that are that way. I mean, La Bamba is kind of the template in, in some ways, or I guess Buddy Holly stores the template, but aside from that, it's just, it is a, it is a ubiquitous movie. It's the same way that like when Greece got in last year, I just remember thinking like, yeah, if you are, if you are trying to chronicle not just American life, but like American cinematic is like, Yes, most most Americans have probably seen Selena, have heard Selena's music. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a good choice. I, I I get it. I support it. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. Oh, <clears throat> so so we've got uh, what two more to go, Kyle? Two two more to go. You've been the hyping text. these up, and I cannot imagine uh, that you have been hyping up Selena so much. So these next two had better have the impact that you think they're gonna have. Nearly, nearly twenty years to the day that it released. American Beauty. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Twenty years to the day. So this is a two thousand one movie. This is a two thousand one movie. Nearly twenty years ago to the day this film has been inducted into the National Film Registry, okay. and I'm not even going to say the name. I'm just going to sing. Da 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 it's all new line and uh, technically the Weinsteins because they got their grubby hands on Jackson first, but it's an American wow. movie shot in New Zealand. It's wow. one of the Good. truly iconic franchises that's still going today that maybe shouldn't, but yeah, I mean, fellowship rules, two towers rules, return rules. We're going to get to, I'm sure they're going to get to those two. Like they got to return of the Jedi this year. Yep. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, what, it's a true crowning achievement for pretty much everyone involved. It's a movie that everyone keeps chasing. Uh, Peter Jackson chased it three times, didn't didn't succeed. Uh, Amazon's spending billions of dollars trying to chase it with a TV show that they have to do five seasons of because of contracts. It's just one of the greatest goddamn movies ever made. It's, yes, yeah. It's it's iconic. I mean, yeah, absolutely. This deserves it. It's crazy because I was revisiting, um, I've been revisiting the Spider-Man films in anticipation of No Way Home and thinking about what that kind of era meant to me because the 2000s in general, not the greatest time for cinema, right? Like, no. I, I feel like, you know, it was something that like when we were in college and we were working on the newspaper and we were trying to round up the best films of the 2000s we really struggled because we were like, let's not just pick the populist choices of Lord of the Rings and, and Dark Knight, but it's hard not to. Uh, it was hard to kind of say that there was anything more impactful. Those two, I mean, Fellowship of the Ring and Dark Knight kind of bookend that decade in a way. 
and kind of just you know they were they had huge impacts in the case of fellowship too it was this amazing thing so obviously our friends uh phil and kenny do their 1999 podcast looking at that year and what a major year that was and then 2000 is this nebulous year of uh, stuff's coming out we don't really know 2001 has this amazing back-to-back-to-back hit of fellowship of the ring comes out that year Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone comes out that year. Spirited Away uh, comes out in America that year. Or, uh, no, it comes out um, it comes out in Japan that year. Shrek is that year. I know Shrek gets dunked on. But there is still this feeling of just, like, 2001 was a year where flights of fancy happened, where the cultures became preoccupied with them. And to have something that both fit the time so well that was arguably one of the things that pushed it you know i mean obviously harry potter was huge fellowship of the ring was huge but that not only fit the time so well and fit its moment so well but when you watch it again now you're still overwhelmed by how complete a work of art it is it is not a case of if you go back and watch sorcerers harry potter and the sorcerer's stone now you know christopher columbus delivered what he needed to deliver on but obviously some of the effects don't hold up it doesn't look necessarily the best Shrek's animation certainly doesn't hold up. There's a lot of things from 2001. Uh, Fast and Furious certainly looks weird now. A lot of things are the one that don't hold up. And yet you watch Fellowship of the Ring, and if it came out today, you would still be like, that movie's gorgeous. There's nothing about it that that is poorly aged. It is so perfectly realized. I mean, so much so that they've made three Hobbit movies that look more like movies today than they look like Lord of the Rings movies, and people go, this is ugly. What the fuck happened? I mean, there are people who watch it every year. I mean, uh, you know, Joanna Robinson, who's a a film critic, uh, we like, you know, uh, tweets about every year watching them again and again. Um, I get uh, deeply emotional revisiting these films. Yeah, uh, you know, I I, I, I watched them with my partner because we read the books together, and um, so many moments when, when Sam... When Sam is is just takes that moment to pause and and says the next step will be the furthest I, I've ever been from home, like it still hits me. It's it's just wow, yeah. What a what a very good choice, and also a movie that sort of defines an entire decade in a way yeah. that like there's a lot of '90s movies in this snap, but like if you said to somebody Pulp Fiction, you kind of just go like, of course that's the '90s in terms of cinema. Like that just feels like a huge. This is one of those, like the, the Fellowship of the Ring is just one of those ones that just, it was such a moment. Um, and obviously Return of the King goes on to win all the Oscars, but it's a collective award. What a good, yeah. Wow. Good. I didn't expect yeah. that. But very good. Yeah. That's the one that was making all the headlines. So I was surprised that y'all, y'all good. didn't see that one. Good. So I'm glad. So there's one more. There's one more. I personally don't, I, I think it's at, at least on par. I think Mike White will prefer it a little bit more, but we'll just jump. Wait, right hang on, hang on. You think I will prefer it more than Tom will? Yeah, 100%. So it's animated? Yes, 100%. Okay, okay. Just wanted to clear yeah. that up. It's yep. animated, and it's it's 2000s? Or, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's not It's not like a brand new movie. Okay. No, okay. well, oh, God. As in, yeah, like, as in yeah. like it yeah. didn't just become eligible. No, it did not just become eligible. Okay. What's the year? From 2008. 2008. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um... Because if it was 2009, I know that's a Murderer's Row animation year. Um, 2008. 
Oh, okay. For a minute, I was about to say Ratatouille, but no, Ratatouille's 2007. So 2008 is, of course, Wally. Is Wally in the registry? Wally is officially in the registry. Good. Good. Yeah, that's great. What a good choice. Also, fuck you. Like, I don't like Wally. What the hell? I didn't know. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I just said I thought you'd be. He. I thought between the two of y'all, I thought Mike would be more hyped for it. I didn't say you didn't like it. Oh my it's, god. It's, it's Wally. Wally's great. You know what's crazy? <laughs> you know what's crazy about Wally is that I hadn't seen Wally since it, uh, like up until this year. I hadn't watched all of Wally since it had come out, and for some reason, I had it in my stupid brain because it was you know I was I was in like late high school when it came out. I had it in my stupid brain that the movie is good but falls apart in the second half. Like, my my dumb brain uh, was like, well, it's great when he's on Earth and he's moving stuff around, but then once it gets on the ship and people are talking, it's bad. And so my partner and I rewatched all the Pixar films um, over quarantine because, uh, weirdly, we had a lot of time. And, um, and, God, I was wrong. That movie is great from start to finish. When he listens to the Hello Dolly song, I want to sob. The the goddamn captain, uh, you know, on the ship, and he takes his steps, and there's the plant, and he's flying, and the fire extinguishes. This is very good. Yeah, good. 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 Wally is good. It's great. Oh, boy. Wally's yes. amazing. It's great. I love it. It's it's one of the best Pixar movies, one of the best animated movies uh ever made uh it rules it's great and, and alongside uh, yeah, the dark night alongside the dark night one of those movies that uh broke the oscars yeah because yeah. 2008 was that year where right i feel like wally and dark knight were the two that people were most mad about not getting a best picture nomination that year like the wrestler yeah. was part of that conversation too but hey they gave mickey Rourke a nomination but i remember people just being actively mad that dark knight and wally got got fucked out of um, best Picture nominations. So now, guess what? They're both in the registry, and none of the 2008 Best Picture nominees are. So who really wins? I didn't see the reader. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Okay. So that's our 25. Um, that's the new uh, class of entrance. That's very cool. Um, you know what else is cool? <laughs> we got a movie in the registry. Yeah. yeah. Hey guys. That we did. I mean. Granted, Watermelon Woman's been seeing a resurgence and you know, all that stuff, but it does just feel cool that we sent a title in and they did it. Um, so, guys, uh, for all of you listening, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, which I assume is coming out um, not too long after we record it. Thank you guys for checking this out and for all of you listening, uh, either if you joined us as season one was coming out or if you came to join us afterward. We are in the works on season two right now. We have lined up a bunch of guests. We are working on a few more but that will be coming out in 2022. And we got a lot of great movies in season two. We hope you'll check it out. Uh, you can follow us on social media at YMO podcast. YMO right? podcast. Yep. At YMO podcast. Follow me on Twitter at NKOAS. Tom. Yeah, I guess you can follow me on Twitter at raging bull 1990. If you want, I don't know. Don't, don't leave me alone. And uh, we hope you guys will join us. If you have any suggestions, any thoughts, if you have anybody you want to hear on the show, anything like that, you can always reach out to us at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for checking it out. We look forward to seeing you in season two. So subscribe so you can always get new episodes. And uh, leave us a review if you can. It helps people find the show. So thank you guys so much. And we will see you in 2022 for season two. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little section. With a little section. How about an